How y'all doing there? Hi guys. Okay, we're live now, so we'll go ahead and uh, get started. Jim, Psalm 119, verse 9. That's uh, Beth, which is house, tent floor, family, house, inn. In a house, or just in. In. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. My lips I recount all the laws that came come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes. One rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not ne neglect your word. Amen to that. Heavenly Father, we would pray that nobody here would neglect your word, not for a single day of their life, that they would be in your word in the morning and think of me, thinking about it through the day. No reason why we can't do that while we're working, Lord. And uh, have your word hidden in our heart. And in the evening, before we go to bed, study up on it, and it'll be in our mind throughout the night. Help us to just reflect on your word and to meditate on it and to be, uh, let it just consume us, the glory that you've presented to us in this precious word, this superior word, Lord. And uh, we thank you for the chance to meet here tonight and to uh, get into your word and to get back into the book of Romans. And Lord, we uh, pray for those who are not here that uh, wherever they are, they'd be uh, safe and secure and arrive soon. And, Lord, we, uh, we just pray for those that are having afflictions and troubles and trials wherever they are. I've gotten many emails this week, and, of course, we have Linda here who's getting over her hip surgery. Pray for her. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for all you've done for us. You're so good to us. We had a great Thanksgiving, and we thank you for all the abundance of the year behind us, and we look forward to the year ahead in anticipation. And we also look forward to... Uh, celebrating what uh, the 25th of this December signifies to us as well here in just a few more weeks. And Lord, we uh, love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, this thing went bang. I think I've got to open it before it won't stop going bang. So give me one second here. Um, all right, let me, uh, maybe this thing will stop making noise if I, okay, there, that should do it. Um, so, just so you know, I might as well do this before we get into Romans, is I mentioned December 25th, and, uh, you know, you got the Hebrew Roots Movement, which doesn't want to celebrate anything which has to do with what we would consider modern Christianity, and, and yet they want to celebrate the Feast of the Lord, they're all fulfilled in Christ, they're done, they're a part of the law, we're not under law, we're under grace, and uh, Paul is very clear about this in the New Testament, very clear. I don't know how people can read those verses and not see it. But what happens with the teachers of like the Hebrew Roots Movement is they diminish the words of Paul. And they say, well, Paul is, you know, it's been changed, uh, whatever. They will come up with any excuse to diminish the words of Paul to go back on, on uh, under the law and all of the feasts of Israel, all of them fulfilled in Christ. The 25th of December is not when Jesus was born, okay? And people uh, will use that as a polemic against celebrating something on the 25th of December. And uh, that shows that they have not understood the significance of the 25th of December. 
because if you go through, and I'm not going to do it right now, I'll just give you the highlights. If you go to Luke chapter 1, it will go through <laughs> the details of the, um, what happened prior to Christ's um, coming, his birth. And you will have, um, uh, let, me, let me go ahead and just real quickly take you there so that we, you know what the significance of um, the, uh, poor Tom, he's out there choking to death, um, the significance of um, the 25th of December. From Luke chapter 1, we have, um, uh, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. Okay, he was of the division of Abia, A-B-I-J-A-H. Okay, those words right there tell us when Jesus was born. All we need to do is start with that verse right there, and we can go back and we can determine when Jesus was born. He is of the division of Abia. Okay, if you go to the details of the uh, assignment of the Levitical priests in the book of Chronicles, it gives you all of the courses of the priests, and I don't know right off the top of my head, maybe it's 1 Chronicles 24, something like that. David lists all of the, the courses of the Levitical priests. There are 24 courses of priests, okay? If there are 12 months in a year, how many courses are there in a month? Two courses. A bia, A-B-I-J-A-H, Abaya, Bija, however you want to pronounce it, it's Abiyah in Hebrew. Abiyah is the eighth course. When does the Hebrew year start, according to the Bible? Uh, no, it's about March. It's the March time frame. It's the month of Aviv that comes from Exodus chapter 13. It's at the time of the Passover. It's actually named there. And uh, it, it says that this shall be your first of months. So it's in the March-April time frame. It's the month of Aviv. If you go forward, your eight courses, which would be four months, you would come to, what is that? We'll say April, May, June, July, whatever. Anyway, and then from there, it says that at six months, John the Baptist, um, uh, it, you get to the next thing in the book of Luke. And like I said, I'm not going to go into a detailed study of this. You can go watch it. I've done a video on this online. But um, you go the six months. It says now in the sixth month, there was Mary, right? And it starts speaking about her. Then she goes down to um, where uh, John the Baptist is going to be born. She stays there until he's born. And then Christ is born. So if you do all of the dating, he is born around the October time frame. He was born on Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets. While those people were out there blowing trumpets in Israel, they were blowing in, ushering in their king, not knowing it. He was born at the time of Rosh Hashanah. But if you backdate from Rosh Hashanah 270 days, which is the gestation period for a woman, you come to the 25th of December. That happened like 18 times in the past century alone. It doesn't happen every year, but there's enough of a precedent for us to know that he was born at the, he was conceived, I'm sorry, end of December. And interestingly, we also have the fact that the Feast of Lights, which is in the New Testament, it's not a feast of the Old Testament, but the Feast of Lights has, like nine times in the past hundred years, fallen on the 25th of December. So we can make the assumption, it's not in the Bible, but we can make the assumption, one, we know he was born on Rosh Hashanah, back it up, he was conceived on 25 December, and from there, it was probably on a year when the Feast of Lights was um, occurring on that day. So, I am the light of the world. He came in at that time. All right? So, when we are celebrating Christmas, we are actually celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ when God stepped out of eternity and united with human flesh in the womb of Mary. So, just so you know, there's not this, this thing that somebody just picked an arbitrary date and says, oh, we're going to uh, start celebrating a day that doesn't apply in the Bible, and we're going to call it Christmas, and it's a pagan holiday, and all those crazy things you hear about. 
Christ was conceived at that time of year. I'll give so, you another argument against yes, it. Yes, go ahead. Because if that was the beginning of his life, that would mean that every child conceived. Right. That's exactly right. And that is how I close off yeah. my video, which gives all of that dating. That's is so that, cool. that Christ was conceived, mm -hmm. and so we have an argument for um, life in the womb. And uh, we also have the argument from John the Baptist, because he's in the sixth month, and he leaps when his he's, Savior comes into his presence. Right. He's aware of what is going on in the womb. So uh, I make that argument, and I've had people actually slam me for that. Well, that has nothing to do with... Uh, I said that has everything mm -hmm. to do with the issue. Makes Aborting a human sense. life absolutely is is completely contrary to the message of the Bible. Um, anybody know, before we'll get into Romans in a second, does anybody know where in the Old Testament it says that if you strike a woman who is wow. pregnant and the baby oh, dies, no. that your life is forfeit? No. That's right. Exodus, anybody? Exodus 21. Um, I think it's... First, hang on a second. It's Exodus. Let me read it to you really quickly. I think it's 21, 21 or something. Uh, Exodus 21, 22. It says, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him. He shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. Okay. Um, now, there are versions of the Bible that actually change that and say that it's the woman that's being harmed and not the baby. That is not the intent of the Hebrew there. I assure you that it is the baby that is being referred to. That's why they specifically bring in the fact that she's pregnant. So, um, striking a child in the womb and that child dying is a capital offense. And so, once again, I would like to bring this up from time to time, is imagine the guilt that the United States of America bears with 59 million children aborted since Roe versus Wade, okay? That's legal abortions, all right? That's, do what you want, folks. Anyway, murder, and that's the Democrat Party of the United States of America, and I'm so glad that they are out of power. Thank God for that. Okay, we're in Romans chapter uh, 2, verse 10. Anyway, just so you know, if you want that study, I've got it online. I've got all the dates on there. I take the camera and put it in front of my computer so you can see all of the dates. Christ was born on Rosh Hashanah. Back it up. He was conceived at 25 December. So, uh, you know, people love to find reasons to look, uh, you know, extra pie. You know, uh, my friend uh, up in Ohio says uh, pietistic narcissism. In other words, I'm more holy than you because I don't observe this holiday or that holiday or I observe the feasts of the Bible when they're in fact condemning themselves because they're reinserting the law, which is what Paul says is, you know. The other funny thing too is that yeah. a lot of people saying that, uh, well, the pagans for centuries before Christ were Ooh. celebrating Christmas. I'm like, excuse me? Hello. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Yeah, I don't think so. But you know what they did? They did have, okay, and I, I will grant people this. They did have feasts at the time of the New Year where the, when the Passover was held. And they had feasts at the time of when uh, Christ was uh, conceived. And they have feasts all throughout the year that co coincide with biblical events. Why do you think that would be the case? It's because God has made the calendar according oh. to the seasons. Mm -hmm. And so there's new life in the spring. Even adult that's never heard of, of God can look out and say, oh, there's new life. And he's going to make up a religion. What's he going to do? He's going to say, well, this is the time when new life comes out, right? It just follows the pattern of what God has done. Mm -hmm. But God intended that pattern for the Bible, not the other way around. Right, right. Okay? People need to understand that, is that everything that happens, even, even from, you know, the very beginning of Genesis 1, it says that he has set the um, lights in the skies for what? For signs and for seasons. 
signs comes before seasons, right? The word is ot. It's the same word, for example, that was used in Isaiah, what was it, 28, where um, uh, he asked King Ahaz, um, was it Ahaz, where he says, uh, do you want the sun to go, Hezekiah? Anyway, um, it's where, um, yeah, okay, Hezekiah, the sign, um, it, the word is an oat. Will the sun go back or will it go forward? Okay, a sign is something that points to something else. When the Bible gives a sign, it is something that points to something else. So when he made the seasons, they point to something else. When he put the stars in the sky, they point to something else. They point to Christ. Everything that God has done is to wake us up to the coming Messiah. Everything. Anyway, little diversion there, but what the heck. Um, Romans 2, verse 10. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Okay, um, I'm going to go back and read a few verses before, just so we have some context, because um, we weren't here last week. No, we're not. Was, uh, um, let's see here. Uh, we have, um, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, this is verse 8, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. That's what people can expect when they don't obey the truth. And you have verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. We talked about that. And then we have, did he show up today? Yeah, he did. He did, good, okay. Um, uh, so um, then we have um, verse 10, as he just said, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and to the Greek. All right, so here are my comments on it. This verse, beginning with but, is set in contrast to verses 8 and 9, which I just read to you. Okay, so we have the, the bad things happening and now the good things happening. And there are those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth. They will receive indignation and wrath. What is that? There's something crinkling over here, and I can't concentrate. Um, uh, anyway, sorry about that. I, I just, whatever it is. Um, okay, so um, let me start again. They will receive indignation and wrath, trouble and anguish, whereas those who work what is good will receive abundance of blessing. Paul defines their rewards as glory, honor, and peace. This is a partial repetition of verse 7, which exchanges the word immortality with peace. So if we go back to verse 7, it says there, um, eternal life to those who, by patient continuance and doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And we go, where was it, verse 10? But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, uh, the two concepts do meet in thought and they support each other. In other words, the peace and the... Uh, um, anyway, <laughs> got to turn off the phones, everybody. <laughs> Uh, sorry about that. Um, immortality is the life which man was authorized to participate in at the beginning and which he lost. Okay? Never again will the redeemed face corruption, death, and returning to the earth. There will be no sickness or sadness in this state, only eternal felicity. This corresponds with the idea of peace quite well. That's why in verse 7 he says this, and then in verse 10 he says this, and they're actually uh, working together. They're corresponding with each other. So um, uh, let's see here, um, uh, where was I? Paul was a Hebrew. To them, peace had a much fuller meaning than it does to the Greek and Western mind. It is more than just a state of calm or quiet. Rather, it signifies wholeness and completion in all ways. When you say to somebody, shalom, you're not wishing them peace like we think today. We say, peace, man. What we're thinking of is something which I wish you well-being, I wish you health, I wish you prosperity, I wish you wealth. All of, the, all of those things come into the idea of shalom, something that is complete and full contentment. All right. Um, rather, it signifies wholeness and completion in all ways. 
This was the original intent for man, and it is fully realized in our acceptance of Jesus and moving from death to life. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want to say that um, when we uh, think of these things, and I talk about these things, you know, especially in my commentaries, as if they're a done deal. And so if somebody is watching one of these uh, Bible studies or reading one of my commentaries, and they say, and gee whiz, I know a Christian that died yesterday, or I know Christians that are basket cases. They're miserable people. This is this life. That's not what this is speaking about. I know people that have been faithful Christians their whole lives that suffer throughout their whole life. Johnny Erickson Tata, love to bring her up. That is not what this is speaking about. This is speaking about what we can expect in Christ. As it says in Ephesians 2, what, uh, 4 through 7, we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. It's a done deal, okay? In God's mind. That does not mean that we are literally seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And so, I, I, I just, I get so tired of the emails with the prosperity gospel. I get so tired of them. People saying, I don't understand why I'm not being blessed. And I don't, they have been led down a primrose path by a teacher that is expecting them to give to him yeah. so that he can right. enrich himself with yeah. no care of the so fact that they are not going to receive the riches that they expect. That is not how God works. He doesn't work that way with healing. He doesn't work that way with money. He doesn't work that way ever. That doesn't mean that you're not going to be blessed if you give, okay? If you give, a lot of people are blessed. But it's not a one-for-one one thing or a 10-for-one one thing. God is not, yeah, it, it's not a, a gambling deal. He is not a cosmic ATM. God is there overseeing everything that happens, all right? And some people will suffer even though they give generously. The poor woman that gave the two mites, do you think she went home expecting to become wealthy that day? No. And she'd probably been giving her two mites her whole life, and she was still a poor woman. That's right. Okay? That's what happens. There are faithful people. So if, if you're watching these studies and you're wondering, why am I not being blessed? It's because that's your lot in life. That is not what Paul is speaking about in these particular verses. He is speaking about what is coming for us. And, I, you know, I, it breaks my heart that people are so deceived that they can expect that Christ is going to save them and then their life is going to be perfect forever. Is it that way for you down in your mission field? Do you tell people that they're going to be blessed forever? No, of course not. You're telling them that you're in a bad place and you're bringing them to a good place. Yeah, and they who live godly lives will suffer. That's, I, thank you. They who live godly lives will suffer. Mm -hmm. that, that's a guarantee. It's a promise. It's not something that we should be saying, I don't understand why I'm suffering. Pick up the Bible and read it, okay? It, it, the Bible does not give those promises that people claim. You know, name it and claim it, word of faith, and all of this wealth and prosperity. The, and it's true. It, the prosperity gospel is absolutely true for the person that is preaching it. He's going to get wealthy. We've got him that live in Florida, and they have 50, 100-acre ranches. They've got 10 and 12 cars. They've got airplanes. Gospel, yeah, I'm telling you, these people are, are wealthy. It is true that the prosperity gospel will take care of those people, and they will not take care of the people that are giving. They're... You know what? They're just going to have to suffer. How could they, how could they even believe? I, I don't know how people can stand up there and take money like that. And the, yeah, I, I just don't know. But they do it, and you know, they probably have themselves so deluded that they actually believe that there's a point where their people are going to start prospering as well. But it, it's a very sad thing. So I wanted to qualify that. Everything that I'm writing about here is something that God promises. We went down that road 10 years ago. 
and people were going wild over it, the prayer of Jabez. Oh yeah, the prayer of Jabez. That's a perfect example of that. They take one verse out of the book of Chronicles and they made a book out of it and everybody's expecting that I can claim my way into, you know, uh, where is that? Um, one Chronicles, let me see if I can find it very quickly. And, you know, you've got all of these names. You've got names and names and names and names. And all of a sudden, this one verse comes out. A guy is reading it. He writes this cute little book very quickly. Here it is. It's a 1 Chronicles 4, verse 10. Name, 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 name. I'm good. Sorry, verse 9. Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, and that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, so that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. And he wrote a book, and everybody is supposed to be able to snap their fingers and claim that God is going to bless them, just as Jabez did. One, that's written in the Old Testament. Two, it's completely out of context. And uh, three, it just doesn't work that way. So I, I'm sorry. If, if you are into that type of theology... You need to get out of it because it is untrue and it is harmful to tell people things like that. It, it, it's too, just harmful. They, they probably have been to a church of such, but you know they, they probably don't talk much about the eternal. No, I'm sure they don't. So yeah, I, I don't know. I've never been to a church so like think that about either. It. Let's uh, let's let's all just work our tails off to to get comfort or or wealth in our lives where we're going to just ignore yeah i mean if this is what we're living for and if this is where we're supposed to be wealthy and prosperous and happy then don't worry about eternity right and that's just the wrong attitude to have everything that paul is writing about is something that is positional in christ and it's looking forward to what we can excuse me expect in christ so naked i came in what naked i came naked i came naked i shall return blessed be the name of the lord Absolutely. Um, okay, so we got that out of the way. This, however, brings up the need for clarification concerning works versus faith. All right? This was explained in verse 2.6, but will be expanded on now. Let me read the verse again so you know where I'm going. 2.10. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay. Um, we are saved and receive these things by faith in Christ and his work alone. Our works, then are only of value after salvation and are used to determine our level of, anybody? Reward. 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 Thank you. Our level of reward. It has nothing to do with what's going on in this life. It's something that God has promised us based on what we do with this life. It's so much easier to say, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to just get my Sunday thing out of the way and I'm going to go home and I'm not going to do anything for Christ. Okay? I'm just, you know, Sunday is it with me. And there are no rewards in that. There's nothing stored up for what you have coming ahead. And unfortunately, that's, that's a very common thing with people. But if we are, I've said this in sermons, and I am absolutely certain about it, is that people that are willing to learn the Bible, that are willing to meditate on the Bible, and I don't care what their circumstances are, if they're you know in prison or if they're at work or if they're walking down the road, if they are willing to meditate on God's word, I can't, and this is just me, I can't think of anything that God will reward you more for. I can't think of anything. Because if you're doing that, then everything you're doing will be a faith. You help somebody across the street, you're going to be doing it because you're thinking about God at the time. Every single thing that you will be doing will be of faith. You buy a car, you're going to stop and pray. Is this the right car? Am I making the right decision? Am I being wise about, you know, it, on and on. If you are meditating on God's word, I know in my heart that he is more pleased with that than anything that we could do. 
I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that because everything else will find its proper place in our life. So, um, uh, where are we here? Our works then are only after salvation. Someone outside of him, no matter how diligent in good works, can never receive these promises because they are a child of wrath by nature. Paul explains this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Okay, so my point there is that Think of somebody, and I, I, somebody's going to know exactly who I'm thinking of, and they're going to say his name. Think of somebody who has given away millions and millions of dollars for good things in this world. What, Microsoft? Or, um, uh, Microsoft, yeah. Microsoft, yes. Bill Gates, yes. that's exactly yes. who I'm thinking yes. of. He's given away even hundreds of millions, yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars for AIDS research and for this and for that, one thing and another. And it means absolutely nothing. It means nothing. He will not get one reward for giving all that away. He's trying to buy his way to heaven. He's trying to ease his conscience. Whatever it is, there is no reward for that man because he is not doing it for Christ. None. The widow with the two mites gave far more than Bill Gates has ever given because she did it out of faith in the God of Israel. Okay? That is how it works. No matter how little you give to a church, if you're doing it in faith, then you'll be rewarded for it. Or if you're giving your, of your time or of your treasure, I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about your, the, you know, your ability to help people. Time, talent, treasure. Time, talent, treasure. Any of those things, if you're willing to do those things for Christ, you are going to be far more rewarded than Bill Gates will ever be rewarded. Now I'd hope that he'd come to Christ and that he would redirect all of that money for a good cause. But if you see what I'm saying is that people can do all kinds of good stuff in this world and it means nothing, all right? It is what you do for the name of Christ that counts. That's what counts. Okay, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, let me read it to you. And he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what Bill Gates does. He is dead in trespasses and sins, and therefore all of his giving means nothing. Nothing. In which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. You're either in the devil or you were in Christ. There are no other options according to the Bible. John 3, uh, um, 18. If you're, you're condemned already, right? The purpose, the main purpose, out of all of the reasons why Jesus said he came and all of the apostles said that he came, the main reason, every other reason, I have come to do this and I've come to do that, or he came to do this and he came to do that, they're all summed up in one thought, which is in 1 John 3, verse 8. It says, he who sins is of the devil. Period. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All are of the devil, everybody. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That is the defining reason for Christ's coming. If we didn't fall, we wouldn't need Christ. We were already in fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. There was face-to-face -face fellowship with the Lord. He walked in the garden, and they saw each other face-to-face. -face. And he came one day, Adam, where are you? Well, I was hiding because I was naked. Right? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit which I told you not to? If that didn't happen, we wouldn't need to worry about Christ coming. He was already there. The defining the reason. Garden. The what? That was Christ. That was Christ. That was Christ the Lord in the Garden of Eden. God, meaning God, the, the Elohim, doesn't have arms and legs. Right. He doesn't have parts, okay? This is Christ. This is the incarnate Christ, the master of time who travels throughout time, fellowshipping with his creatures, 
How he did it, I don't know, but that was him. He walked up to Abraham. He's called Jehovah in the Old Testament. He's called Jesus in the New, and it is one and the same. All right, there are not two gods. There is one God. Yes. John 14, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's right. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the, um, uh, what does it say in uh, Colossians 1? It says, in, in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. What was that? He is, the he is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All of these verses, every one of them points to one being that is God, that manifests himself to the people of the world. It is the Lord. There's not two lords. There's not a different God in the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament, he was veiled. In the New Testament, he is revealed. But so, John 10, 30 says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. That's exactly right. He is God incarnate. Okay? Um, so... Um, we'll go back there um, power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath John 3.18 just as the others all people are either in they are either in Christ or they are children of wrath there is no other path to God. There is, I, I wish that people could understand that. You saw that, I think it was two weeks ago, I did the prophecy update, and evangelical Christians believe a higher percentage than the regular society that all people go to heaven. How can you be an evangelical Christian and believe that all people by default go to heaven? How is that even possible? Yeah. <laughs> Unstudied. Unstudied. That's why we're sitting here with Saved this Bible. I'm almost angry today because of bad doctrine. It just, you know, the emails sometimes I get and, and people that don't want to hear the truth. When they email you a question and you email them a response and then they come back and they say, well, I disagree with that. This is, it's in the Bible. This is what it says. I'm sorry, I can't take away your mother's cancer. It's not possible for me to do that. If God wants to do that, if he chooses to do that, he will. We cannot claim that out of a person. That is presumptuous and it is sin. Okay? We pray for God to heal and we hope for it, we expect it, we anticipate it, and if it doesn't happen, he is God. He is sovereign over that uh, illness that that person happens. I've got friends, I've got one that I don't know if she's died today, but this morning, the first thing, very first post I saw was the lady that I went to visit up in uh, Chicago. Oh, oh. The very first post I read, they said they don't think she's going to last today. Oh. She's been on my mind all day long. Well, what am I going to do? Go she up there the and Lord. if she, she knows, knows the Lord, Lord and I'll be happy when she's gone. Yeah, I, she's I mean, not going to be in this misery yeah, anymore. Yeah. But I'm not going to go up to Chicago and tell her family, I'm now going to claim healing over this person. I'm not going to do that. Well, what would expect you to do? There are people that expect that. They, I, I, I can't tell you how many people expect healing. We can ask for it, but we cannot snap her. We can't do the Benny Hinn. We can't. And I put a, a steady stream of this throughout the day. Somebody will email me and they'll ask me to pray for them, and I'll say I will. And they say, they're going to be healed, right? Oh, That's not my choice. Okay? So I, I just, I, I, I'm in that mood today where I just want people to understand proper doctrine. Like the proper doctrine says that the future is where it's at, not this life. They What's like that mulberry tree being uprooted. Yeah, that's right. The mulberry like tree. That that's exactly right. And once again, out of context. The they yeah. what? The person themselves has to be the one that has the faith. Because even Jesus couldn't do miracles with people that didn't That's right. That they lack the faith. That is right. That's absolutely right. Okay, so um, prior to Christ, man is it, what I just read from Ephesians, prior to Christ, man is at enmity with God. 
and deeds, even supposedly good deeds, only increase the wrath. They don't decrease the wrath. Bill uh, Gates does not decrease God's wrath against him by doing good deeds. Why? When sin's bad enough. But why would good deeds to him increase God's wrath against him? Think it through. Like the brother presented fruits and you know, didn't do a blood sacrifice. It's working. It's working. He's trying to work his way to heaven, and God rejects that. It's, it is. It's arrogant. It's saying, I am going to merit heaven. That's why it increases God's wrath. Let me see what I said about it, though, because I haven't read it yet. Um, yeah, here we go. The reason is that by trusting in one's own deeds, it becomes a form of self-idolatry, something which only increases guilt. I'm going to do this good thing. Bill, uh, uh, What's his name? Bill Gates. $10 billion, right? I've done all of this stuff. I deserve, it's somebody that you said, um, you were at a funeral one time and the son came up and he said, my father earned heaven. Yeah. Wasn't it you that said that? Yeah. Okay, so, you know, so, somebody that he went to a funeral one time and he said, this person said, my father has earned heaven. Can you imagine saying that? I've earned the right to stand in front of somebody? I, I, I can imagine it. I, you're told that that's what, what, what yeah. you know, it's all about, that it's yeah. like, okay, yeah. Yeah. get all these notches on my belt. And well, that's what, that's what Bill Gates well. is doing right now. He's that's saying, you know, I'm earning my way to heaven. That's and that, what the Catholic Church is all about. You well, that, about it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it, it, we, we don't earn our way to heaven. We receive heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, uh, Self-idolatry. Trusting in your own deeds, something which only increases guilt. Any non-Christian philanthropist will make a good example. They give money and efforts to causes. And here I'm, I'm picking it out. AIDS, for example, in order to make the world a better place. Or to perhaps help their fellow man. This brings about personal satisfaction and, of course, applause for man. Right? I'm doing a good job and all these people are complimenting me. But it failed to address the sin problem which already existed. The favor rests not with God, but with man, and in particular, self. So you see how that only increases your guilt in front of God. It doesn't decrease it. And people think that, oh, he's a good man. And you hear that all the time. He does a lot of good for uh, whatever. Mother Teresa, if she didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, her whole life was wasted. Her whole life was wasted. She only increased her guilt. And she can be even more pious by saying, I don't want that Nobel Peace Prize or whatever. All that does is it increases her guilt because it's a form of, as I said with the, a different context, by his pietistic narcissism. I'm the center of the world of piety, and it doesn't work that way. But the so. sad thing also is that people look at people like that and say, well, I, I can do the same thing. Sure, that's right, because that's what the world is based on. It's yeah. based on the world's standards. And so everybody's trying to outdo each other in good deeds, but they're going around the cross, and it gets you nowhere. So Paul, it, I, I'm saying these things today because we have to keep reminding ourselves that our focus is not on the deeds of this world for this world. Our focus has to be on deeds of this world for eternity. Okay. Just so you don't throw anybody off that's on there, is that if Mother Teresa and Bill Gates knew the Lord... That's right, then their deeds would be counted as, right. as righteousness. Right. That is exactly right. If they, And that's why I said with Mother Teresa, I have no yeah. idea. I don't know anything about the lady. All I know is that everybody cites her as the example. And if she didn't know the Lord, it meant nothing. So uh, all of these things have to be taken, and we have to think them through very carefully. Um, man must come to Christ in order to first be justified before God. Guess what our sermon is called? Um, justified. Justified and sanctified before our God. Yeah, that's it, it, it'll be 
this week will be like last week, which I got an email from Burke, and he did not like last week's sermon. So I, uh, no, I'm kidding. He emails me every week, and we just talk about what I talked about. So anyway, he just, uh, I, I'm just picking on it because. It wasn't long enough. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't long enough. That's right. But yeah, I, I, I just threw that out because um, he and I just every week, he'll email me about the sermon, and then I'll email him about his weekly Bible study and stuff. We, so I'm just picking on him. But um, yeah, man must come to Christ first in order to be justified before God. And justified in, in uh, one word, it's a, it's a dual word, a compound word, but one word, what, what would justified, give me a word that would translate the word justified. It's compound. It's actually two words, but it's got a hyphen in there. Declared righteous? I'm thinking of not guilty. Okay. Oh. Yeah, not guilty. All right. Declared righteous is correct, but you're justified. You are no longer have any guilt before God. You are not guilty. Okay. That is what justification is. If you're going to think of just a single word to translate that. I mean, you could get into a long theological study of what justified means, but just not guilty. There's no guilt before God because of it. You stand justified. Okay. Um, think of being in a court, right? You're in a trial, and you're either going to be sentenced as guilty or not guilty. If your sentence is guilty, then you're not justified before the court. But if he says not guilty, you stand justified. Okay, so there you go. Um, only when the wrath at sin is dealt with, and where was that dealt with? That's right, in the body of Jesus, in his physical body. When it's dealt with, can the works merit favor and reward? Okay, and only after that. Works cannot merit favor and reward until after you have the sin debt taken care of. The purpose that the uh, Son of God was manifest was to destroy the works of the devil. Even if you don't remember the verse, remember the number. 1 John 3, 8. That is the defining reason. It starts all the way at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, and it runs all the way through Scripture. Satan shows up at various times all the way, right there at the beginning of the book of Job, which I'm reading right now for my uh, morning morning study. Um, and he shows up all the way through, accusing people. It needs to be out of the way before we can start working for the Lord. Okay, 1 John 3, 8. Um, uh, where was I? Yeah, okay, the result is the peace which Paul announces in today's verse. That's why he brought that in. I'm going to read you those two verses again. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Okay, and then verse 10. But glory, honor, and peace. So you've got the immortality and the peace, and he's tying the two together by making those two uh, verses so close in terminology and substituting immortality with peace. It's saying that that is what the peace represents. It's immortality. It's life with God, and it's going to be the wholeness, the peace of God, the shalom, which will go on forever and ever and ever. And we're never going to get tired of it, which is kind of amazing to me because I get tired of things immediately. I, literally, I, I get excited about something, and um, I made our, our dinner table for us back in um, uh, 1994, right when we got back from overseas. And um, we've been using it now for 20, what is it? Uh, it must be 22, 20, whatever, how long 94 was. And um, I... Got all the materials. It, we had the, the floor that uh, I had extra pieces of it, which was uh, cypress, real thick cypress, and uh, that's the floor I put into the house, which back then was cheap, and now you can't buy it anymore. But So we had this, and I had these extra pieces, and I thought, I don't want to throw these away, and I'm never going to use them, so I'll make my wife a dinner table for Christmas. Right? Then I got the, the, the 
frame, which was a four by eight sheet of plywood and I cut it down to the right size and then I got poplar for the frame under it and I got mahogany legs, which I made. But the moment that I started cutting the very first piece of wood, I was already thinking about being done with it. I can't wait till I'm done with this. I mean, the, I started working on it and I thought, I just can't wait to be done with this job. It's always the next thing. Yeah. There's, isn't it? It doesn't matter. Yeah. And when you finish it, you think, well, now what am I going to do next? And you're always That's looking. Right. There will be none of that when we're in the presence of the Lord. None of that. Everything will be contentment. And when we have the new thing, it won't be like, I need to have the new thing. It'll be because it is always the new thing. It's not like I'm, I'm waiting for my iPad and I get it and then a, a, a week later somebody's got the newer version and it's, now I need that. There will be none of that. There will be nothing like that. And that is why it's so exciting to think about what is coming. What Christ has planned for us is something that it's on a magnitude so far above what we know right now, we can't conceive of it. Okay, so uh, be assured that what Paul is saying, peace and immortality, when he's tying those two together, they will be in a marvelous way. It will be glorious. And I won't have to worry about starting cutting a new table up there and then thinking, I can't wait to get this job done. Okay? Um, anyway, um, so uh, here we go. Where was I? Reconciliation with God. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the uh, result, uh, go back a little bit, dealt with in the body of Jesus, can the works uh, merit favor and reward? The result is the peace Paul announces in today's verse. Reconciliation with God through Jesus should lead us to accomplish works of righteousness leading to glory, honor, and peace. Peter notes the time when this will be fully realized in 1 Peter 5, verse 4. So let me read that to you, and we'll be done with this verse. 1 Peter 5, verse 4. Peter, 1, 2 Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 4. He says, um, uh, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So, marvelous stuff. That, absolutely marvelous stuff. So, here's a life application for you. Uh, are you saved and just waiting on your glorification without living a full and abundant life of works for Christ? Or are you actively participating in doing those things which will bring him glory now and that will bring you rewards when he appears? This life is our one chance to work for our eternal rewards. That's it. So all we get is the, the very short span that we have right now. And as I said in the Prophecy Update on Sunday, we had um, Castro died this week. We had Florence Henderson, the Brady Bunch. I grew up watching that, right? She's gone. Ron, um, what's his name? Ron Glass. He was in Barney. Uh, I didn't see Barney Miller. Anybody see Barney Miller? That was when I was overseas. But apparently he was in that. And he, he did a show that I happen to like, which is a space show, like kind of a Star Trek kind of thing. But they're gone. They had this one life, and I bet you that both of them and Castro, too, probably thought it was a short, short ride, right? Okay, so uh, we get this one chance. This life is it. We save money in our banks for the future. We go to college for the future. We buy insurance for the future. How much more should we add to our heavenly account then? Be wise with your time you have been given and determined to accomplish your works for that which will never perish. Right? We have insurance. And why do we buy insurance for a house? Because, because we expect it to last forever? No. 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 It's no. going to perish, and we know that. That's why we buy for it. We're buying things for the future. I save for my children's future. Why? Because they're educated and they get out and they don't need that money? No, because it's something that will help them with their future. Mm -hmm. And here we disregard eternity for these short little patches of, you know, I'm going to save up for my next car. I'm going to save up for this, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to stop smoking because it'd be good for me. 
It might add on 10 years to your life, whatever. It's not very much if you think about it. Everything is so short. Everything is so so compressed here. And we got these two children. How old are one or two children here? We got one. Okay, how old are you? You're 11. Okay, well, believe me, you're going to be 55 before you know it. <laughs> before you know it. I remember when I was 11 and it was yesterday. Yeah. I, plan, for, plan for your life in eternity now. Okay? Don't worry about this life. You plan for your eternity now. Use the best of your time for Christ because he will reward you. Okay? Um, we never have children here. This is really wonderful. Having yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay, so here we are in verse 11, please. Why, why don't you oh, read wait. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. The 10 is what I want, but you got to have 8 and 9. Okay, Ephesians, hang on a second here. What am I doing? You want me to read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10? Yes. Okay, Ephesians 2. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where the works come in. Okay. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it's not of works to be saved, right? Works come after salvation. There's nothing we can do in order to be saved. Nothing, okay? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why, that's why we were saved. It wasn't for us to live for, uh, today it's not for us to snap our fingers and be, you know, prosperous so that we can sit in a house and watch TV and enjoy all of the worldly comforts that we want. We were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, if we are, if we are under the prosperity gospel, and if we are to expect prosperity and health and all of those blessings, are we going to be out there doing what we should be doing for Christ? Absolutely not. I know somebody in here who I can't point at him or her and say where he or she is uh, a missionary, but this person emails with his or her heart open to the world. I'm really struggling right now. I went to this country and I am so sick. I've never been so sick in my life. I'm lonely. I'm wondering about what I should be doing. And I read every one of these updates that I receive. And this person happens to be in the church right now. And I have to tell you what, I could think of a lot, lot more fun things to do with my time than what this person does. I could think of a ton of things. And this person is highly educated and could make a lot of money for this world. Could have all kinds of cars and houses and everything else. And yet, he or she spends all of his or her time in a country that doesn't appreciate his or her presence trying to get people to know who Jesus Christ is. Okay? So... But this person is God's masterpiece. Th this person is God's masterpiece. His masterpiece. He said, that's what that word means. That's right. And you know what the word is in Greek? Poema. You know what uh, where do, what word comes from? Poem. That's right. It's like you're God's poem. You're, you're, God is writing a poem about you. Now, that's a little bit of an abuse because... Words don't translate directly from Greek into English, but the root of the word poem is the same as the word for masterpiece or workmanship. Okay, And so that's why when you look at a root word, you can understand where your language comes from. You want to know where the word light comes from in Greek? Phos. What do you think of when you hear the word phos? Phosphorus. Thank you. It's light. So if you look at this source of our words, and we got a million of them, okay, um, uh, word in Greek is the word lexi. Anybody? Lexicon. 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 That's right. So you can understand 
what was on the minds of those people, which led to our minds today. If you go back and look at, and that's why when we do the, 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 you know, the sermons, which are in the Old Testament, we go back and we look at every single new word in the Bible. If there's a new word in that verse, I will always highlight it and say, this comes from this primitive root word, or it comes from this secondary root word, or it's tied into the verb, which means I always do that because I want people to understand what is on God's mind. He chose that word to come into the Bible at that moment in Scripture for a reason. Always. There's never a time where a word is introduced that is arbitrary or without God's thought. He is preparing his word very carefully so that we can understand what is going on. But we'd rather go out and you know play on the iPad all day than sit and study this word. And that is a crime. As I said, I think the greatest reward that you will receive when you stand before the Lord is to say, I wanted to know you more in the life that I lived. Everything else you do, telling other people about that word, is going to benefit them, and hopefully they'll want that too. But for you to say, I want to know you now, what more could, what more could God be pleased with than us wanting to know him through what he has given us? That's right what here. Paul said in Philippians 3, that I might know him. Know him. You know, That's right. To know him. Up here That's <laughs> absolutely right. To know him. That is where rewards come from the most. And that's why, you know, the people that are streaming online right now, they may have better circumstances. They might have a couch and, uh, you know, whatever. They don't smell my patchouli. But they're also learning right now the word of the Lord. And I, I'm so thankful for people that want to do that because it's so easy to not want to focus on the word. It takes study. It takes, you know, you go home tired sometimes. But this is where the rewards are. Is because when you know the word, now you can go out and you can apply that as you guys are doing down in your mission field right now, right? You're being able to apply that to other people and to get them to want to know Christ as well. Everything you do for the Lord will be rewarded. Okay, verse 10, go ahead. I did 10. 11. I'm sorry, 11. For well, we God, can do 10 again if you want. Sure, why not? For God does not show favoritism. Okay, and this one says, for there is no partiality with God. Kind of the same thing, a little differently worded, but uh, uh, this verse begins with four. It's being used as a confirmation of the previous thought, which twice stated, for the Jew, then the Gentile. The anticipated wrath of God or favor of God comes equally upon all. There's no consideration of the outer appearance of the jar, but rather the favor lies with what is in it. All right, God is not superficial in his judgments, but determines the value of the contents rather than the showiness of what is externally apparent. And the reason why I use that uh, particular uh, metaphor, the jar, is because Paul uses that elsewhere, jars of clay. All right, we are, we're made from the, the, the soil of the earth. We are a jar, and we have something inside of us. The contents are much more valuable than the jar itself. When you have a jar in, it doesn't matter what, you know, when, when you have a jar and you make it for a reason. What is the reason for making a jar? Salt. To hold something. That's right. And some jars hold salt. Some jars hold olive oil. Some jars hold gold. The contents are what make the jar valuable. I'm not talking about a gold jar. I'm talking about a jar that's made of clay. Whatever you put in that jar, the value of that jar is based on what's inside of it, not what's on the outside of it. Okay? And that's what we need to focus on because, you know, I, I, I go through Mail Online, which is about 400 news articles every single day. They're just billions of them. They just, all over the world, they put these, and a lot of them are really just trashy. And they've got pictures of you know, Russian models, and next thing you see is Kim Kardashian, and mm -hmm. all of the things that the world wants to look at, they're all on this, right. this news site. 
And you look at somebody like Kim Kardashian, and she is stunning. She's beautiful. J-Lo, anybody know uh, Jennifer Lopez? She's beautiful. And yet you think of what's inside of the jar, and you think, why would anybody want to hang around with that person? Why would you want to do that? What is inside of that jar is far more valuable. When you look at the people in church, they're usually, you know, just a group of people. Some of them aren't very good looking. Some of them are sweaty from working and they came in late, whatever. But it's what's inside of those people which makes them precious to God, okay? That is where the value is. And so all of the flesh of this world might look good from the outside, but in 10 years, it's going to be gross, yeah. right? The older you get, the grosser you get, and that's all there's hair. No hair grows out of your ears, and I'm talking about the physical body. I'm not talking about the person. I'm saying that as we get older, our physical bodies break down, right? We start getting... Well, that's true. That's a very good point. If, that's that's the... Um, uh, I, I'm going to say something, and please don't take offense at this, but this was something we used to say in school. Um, uh, beauty is only skin deep, yes, but ugly is to the bone. <laughs> it's not a nice thing to say. But yeah, if if you're ugly, then what does it matter? You work on you work on the inside. Right. Work for Christ. And to That's the point. We all have a recycle thing outside. What happens to the jar when the contents? Are That's right. That's a very good point. Now we have the jar, right? And the contents of that jar are used up. The salt is gone. The oil is gone. You throw it away. You know, in, in the uh, Old Testament, the jar was just the, the least valuable thing. The, the potter was the dirtiest job in the Old Testament. The guy was just, he was always dirty. People would come down and he got, you know, maybe a penny for making this jar to hold something. It was just something, in, if, if something was made of clay and something unclean touched it, you were to break that jar, right? If something was made of gold or a, a, a metal that had to be scoured, it had to be cleaned, put through the fire, and then it was considered clean. But a clay jar, when it was defiled, was to be broken. And you think, that's what we are. We are jars of clay. And if we're not made into something else by the power of Christ, that jar is going to be destroyed. Right? So, little lesson there for you. Anyway, didn't mean to, to give that joke, but it's true. I, I can say that joke because I am ugly, and it goes right to the bone. So, yes, sir. Sarah. Yes. Was, was uh, you might say, she defied that thing. Because yeah, in her did. older years, she, she was, was beautiful still woman. beautiful. That's, That's right. right. Even as an older person, That's she was still beautiful. And Raquel Welsh, I'm telling you, she must so, be 120 now, and she's oh still a beautiful. Gosh. Well, she is. I mean, she was, she was, no, 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 no. I'm just simply saying that. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, some people do hold their, their beauty, but for the most part, we really start to break down very quickly. So, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm getting myself in deep here. You're digging it. You're digging it, All right. So, Eleven said. Uh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, Eleven said. Now, where were we on that? Um, oh, yeah, first for the Jew, then the Gentile, and I read that. Okay, this thought. Let me read that, the last for, uh, uh, sentence again. God is not superficial in his judgments, but determines the value of the contents rather than the showiness of what is externally apparent. This thought permeates the Bible, and yet it is often misunderstood by both the Jew because of his heritage and by the church member who has entered into some denomination, sect, or cult, and thus believes that he has been elevated to an especially favorable standing with God because of that affiliation. Yeah. All right, We talked about that last week, Jim, and I'm going to mention it again in the sermon this Sunday, is that some people think they have right standing with God because of the church that they are in. Right. 
They, I am in this particular church, and therefore I am okay with God. And I tell you, it does not work that way. The Jews are not okay with God just because they're Jews. But that's what they think in their head. And they, they need to get beyond that. Well, I'm going to talk about that in detail in Sunday sermon. I'm not going to get into it now and give it all away. But um, uh, how, how can we know that? The law actually shows us that. It is right in the law that they are not right with God, even in the law itself. So um, in Deuteronomy 1.17, we find that God expects our judgments to be fair and without partiality, and the reason for that is given. Deuteronomy 1 verse 17 says, all right, where are we here? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 1, 6, 1, 17. Let's see here. Why did I pick that verse? You sh- oh, yeah, you shall show no partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. And I command you that at all times, which you should do, okay? We're to be impartial in our judgments. And we actually did that already right after the giving of the law in Exodus 20 and then into 21. It talked about not showing favoritism to a poor person or to a rich person and et cetera, et cetera. And I went through every bit of that in detail is because that is what God expects of us, okay? All judgment is ultimately God's judgment. So when we pervert justice, we slander his name by our actions. Now think of that. Think of all the judges in America right now which have been appointed by left-leaning presidents and they're out there making unrighteous decisions. They're making unfair decisions. They're not being impartial. You know, it's a pagan goddess, but the idea holds true. When you have a picture of justice standing at the Supreme Court or outside of any courthouse, what is she doing? That's right. She's blindfolded, somebody said, and somebody else said she's holding scales. Mm -hmm. She is impartial in her judgments, and the scales will be balanced. Mm -hmm. There's no unfair, we don't put a little weight on here because that guy is rich. We don't put a little weight on here because that guy is married to J-Lo or something. It is impartial. I have no idea who I'm judging, and nobody has put on anything on these scales. It is completely impartial because the judgment belongs to God. And when we pervert it, we misuse his name in the process. Okay? Um, God sets the standards, and they are universal in scope. And thus, they should be in application as well. James 2, 1 through 4 clearly defines our responsibilities in this matter and how to carry them out. James 2, verse 1 through 4 says, um, hang on a second here, 59th book of the Bible, James 2, 1 through 4. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, Paul stole, and there should come in a poor man in filthy clothes, Charlie Garrett, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Right? can't do that. We've got to be impartial. We've got to say this person has just as much. Now, that's not to say, and I, I have in the past had people removed from the church here because they come in, they're drunk, and they start making a bunch of noise. One time I didn't give the guy a chance to because he'd been in here two weeks earlier and he came in and he made a bunch mm-hmm. of noise. I said, I'm not going to have that again. Mm-hmm. Just It's not going to happen. But I usually give people a chance. And we had one guy come and sit up here and started to sleep, and then ten minutes later he's yelling in the middle of the sermon. Right? You can't have that. You have to have decorum. This is the Lord's house. But you give them a chance, at least. If they're going to make a, a scene, you wouldn't expect anybody else to do that. You don't expect a drunk to do it, so they can leave. But um, 
Uh, it wasn't for his clothing that you kicked him out. No, that's right. It wasn't for his clothing. I didn't say your clothing is gross. Please don't come in here. And the one of them is a guy that I happen to know, the one that I wouldn't let him come in here. I've dealt with him out on the key now for 20 years. He just is belligerent. He takes advantage of anybody he knows as a Christian. He's, you know, and when he's willing to grow up, and I even said to him one time when he was out here, I said, he started grumbling because I wouldn't give him any money or something. I don't remember what. And I said, you know what? You're your own worst enemy. You're, your own, you're destroying a perfectly good life because you're not willing to just shape up and to just follow what God would have you do with it. He's given you one life to live, and you're out here drinking your life away. Why would you do that? But until he comes to that realization, there's nothing you can do for him. You can't force it on somebody. You can just keep telling him about Jesus. Keep telling him about Jesus. Anyway, so don't be partial in your judgments. Don't look down on... I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's always on Facebook. You see it about once a year, somebody recycles it. It's the pastor that... Uh, uh, went into oh, his yeah, church yeah, yeah, yeah. dressed up as a bum yeah. you know looked yeah. like me he had a beard and he was just oh, no he did he looked just like me he had a beard and he had a t-shirt on and he went and sat in the back and nobody said hello to him nobody talked to him yeah. and halfway through the service he got up and walked up to the front and took off all of that stuff and they said oh there's the pastor there mm -hmm. he said y'all learned the lesson I hope I don't know if it's a true story or not but it's I a good I wouldn't be surprised yeah. either it's yeah. a good lesson one way or another yeah. so having considered this what James just said about being impartial and what it said in Deuteronomy um, it must be noted that judgment and placement are not the same thing. But as the world is running towards ever more liberal thinking, the two categories do become confused. God does not show favoritism in his judgments of us, but as the sovereign creator, he has the right to place people in various locations and at any point in time. You can't say, well, why wasn't I born in 1852? That's not your decision. That was God's decision. Judgment is different than placement, okay? Why wasn't I born in Sarasota, Florida? I don't want to live in, you know, whatever. I, I don't want to say, yeah, Nome, Alaska, right? I, and now somebody in Nome, Alaska is going to be oh, upset. Geez. I didn't Sorry. say it, he said it. Anyway, I was trying to think of a place that nobody would want to be, but, you know, there are people pretty much everywhere on the earth, and they really love their home homeland. So, but, um, uh, yeah, it, it, we, we, we can't decide those things. He has the right. Therefore, they may be brought into the world in unequal status economically, socially, and so on. These choices are at his discretion and do not imply partiality or favoritism in any way, shape, or form. The founding fathers of America understood this when they penned these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments, I hope Trump will go back and read this one, are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. We haven't had that for the past, I can't tell you how many years, and I'm not just saying eight years, I'm saying well, you can go back over the guy that was there eight years before him and the guy that was there, how long was Clinton Four. in? Four. No, no. Oh, eight. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, they have not understood that fundamental precept is that the rights of th their rights come from us. And I, I, it seems like maybe the American people finally woke up and said, we're going to do something different mm -hmm. this time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he's going to learn his lesson or not, but uh, uh, this is what these people understood that. And when they, uh, you know, one of the most wonderful things I did when I was traveling around in 2010 mm. is I went to, I think, who's the guy, James Madison, the guy that was the actual uh uh, the, no, the guy that was behind the the Constitution. 
the the the, the mm -hmm. theol or the uh, the the concepts behind it. Uh, not not uh, no, Jefferson. Uh, uh, no, uh, there's a guy that he. Uh, um, James Madison. James Madison is the one I'm thinking of. He was the he was the intellectual behind it. In other words, what he did is he studied every government that has ever existed. Mm. He had every single government that you could possibly think of. He had books on them. And he was the one that made the framework. Now, there were other people, Jefferson and, and all of these people that gave their input. But this is the man that was the understanding of government itself throughout human history. And he looked at every one of them. And he's the one that came up with the, 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 the structure of what we live under now. And his house was you know, kind of like um, bought by somebody. And then it was something else. And then finally, somebody got a hold of it. And they're, they're making a museum out of it. And... The one room where his desk was is up on a second floor, looking out over this big open field, and they somebody had gone in there and you know they tiled this room and they'd put this up in this room and they'd put carpet in that room, but they peeled everything back, and right there where his desk would have been, there was this spot of ink, where he he was very careless with his ink, and so his well would fall over, and the floor was stained with all of the original ink of his mind being put out for the structure of the U.S. government. And cool. it was amazing. Yeah. Look, my hair standing up just thinking about it, is that somebody was willing to take the time to think through what did not work in human history and what did work and to start putting them together into the structure of a government that is as close to something that I think God would favor on this earth as any government that has ever existed. The government of the United States of America has come almost, if you look at the references, to the Bible in the the establishment of our government, the the three branches of government come right out of the Book of Isaiah. You know, you've got the judge, you've got the the uh, the priest, and you've got the um, uh, one other. Anyway, he is our lawgiver, he is our judge, he is our something. Anyway, so it, it, they took these things and they said, we're going to make this government work based on biblical principles, right. rejecting all the bad of the other governments all the good together with them. Anyway, that ink stain has always stuck in my head because of that. Now, think about that for just a second. Where am I going to go with that? Think of the ink stain in history that made this book here. They got to an impasse, though, and Benjamin Franklin was the one who Benjamin Franklin, that's right, we need to pray. That's right. You cannot be a deist. Benjamin Franklin was not a deist. Because you cannot be a deist and say it's time to pray because deists don't believe that God intervenes in the mm -hmm. affairs of man. And not one deist was a founder of our government. Right. Not one. Not one deist. And ev now everybody, the liberals in our, our society, they're all deists. They were all a bunch of deists. Not one deist. Every one of them was a praying person. Every single one of them without mm -hmm. exception. So um, uh, that is absolutely correct. But if you think... Going back to what I said, the ink stain of history, which compiled this book here, is infinitely more valuable than the ink stain on the, the floor of James Madison's house. This is where God's heart is. This is where all of the theology, which sets all of the standard for everything that works in this universe, and every working Madison's right here. stain is what can come. That's right. When you use that as your That's guide. right. Madison stain is what can happen when you use the Bible as your guide. That's ex very well said. A lot of the great discoveries in all of history have been given to people who are men of God. That's right. Because all they of the, would use it wisely. God could entrust them with 
some things, you know, that that's right. he couldn't entrust to other people to use it for good. That, so. that, that is right. And what she's saying is correct. Like the, the scientific disciplines, all of them from the 16, 17, 1800s, the 1900s, electricity and, mm -hmm. and uh, health, and all of the scientific disciplines were based on Christian people, Christian foundation. And it's summed up best by Johannes Kepler, who said, mm -hmm. science, anybody? is thinking God's thoughts after him. Mm -hmm. Johannes Kepler said that, and that is what has always been the impetus and the motivation for uh, Christian science, Christians who are scientists, is to mm -hmm. think God's thoughts after him. And we've lost that. Christians have completely abandoned the scientific disciplines, and they have completely abandoned the, the philosophical and the moral and the mathematical disciplines, completely. There are very few uh, seminaries left that will teach anything on Christian philosophy or on Christian morality, except on you know a, a superficial basis, and yet those are the the important things for people to understand and to know. That I, I just don't understand how we can get away from these things, but we have. We've caved to the world on morals. We've caved to the world on philosophical ideas. We've caved to the world on science. And all we do is we go to church on Sunday morning, and then we go home, and that's it. And there's very little, thank God for Norman Geisler who started the, the seminary I went to because it is almost all philosophy and morality and apologetics, almost completely. But there's very little of that left. Dallas Theological is probably very good on that, few others, but for the most part it's just, just tough. Okay, um, let's see here. I forgot the most important invention of all. What's that? Printing press. The printing press. Yes. Gutenberg. Gutenberg. Yes. Got, it got the word of God yes. in the people's hands. It was, you talk about the explosion of faith after the, the printing press, mm -hmm. that was it. Mm -hmm. My good, absolutely right, how God has used the events of human history to bring about, mm -hmm. the, you know, his purposes and his word for us. Fantastic. And, you know, if you think of one other invention which has really opened up the Bible in a completely different way is, um, the, uh, is the computers. Right. You know, right. I can download a Bible in one second, right? Oh, no. Zip, I just go online, and then I can do a study on any word in the Bible which would have taken a man sitting with a lamp next to his desk days to study that single word, I can now do it in 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. And yet we are too busy and we have right, to go, right. you know, do something else out at the beach or at the sports or, you know, on our iPad and we never get outside anymore. But you can study the Bible in seconds, mm -hmm. which those people spent days and days and days of their lives trying to figure out one single concept. And not only that, but I can read their ideas that they spent weeks and months on. I can read all of them in one page on the Internet for one verse of the Bible, and I can give you a devotional based on it, based on Charles Ellicott and Adam Clark and um, John Gill and, and um, just I could go on with the, the pulpit commentary and Vincent's Word Studies and all of it on one single page for one verse, and I can read all of their human intellect and all of that they had studied from previous people, and I can read it in just instantly. What a blessed age we live in, and yet we would rather not do that. It's too much hard work. What a shame. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, where was I here? Um, the founders did not have to say, have did not say that all have the right to happiness, but that all have the right to pursue it. Big difference there. Owning a house is to be a pursuit, not a judgment. Feeding oneself is a product of placement and opportunity. It is not a universal right, which is the responsibility of other people. And unfortunately, when we go down to the projects every Saturday, that is what we see. They believe that it is a right that they are fed by somebody else's hard work. 
they believe that is a fundamental human right, and it isn't. It has nothing to do with it. In other words, if a person is in a place where food won't grow, it is their responsibility to move and to work with their hands to grow it or to purchase it from a <laughs> supply line based on money earned from another vocation. I don't grow my own tomatoes. I hate tomatoes anyway, so I wouldn't buy them. But if I want tomatoes for Hitiko, I'm going to go and find somebody that has taken the time to grow those tomatoes, and I'm going to pay him what he thinks it is worth. And we've lost that. We've lost these simple concepts of, I don't have a right to this, but I have to eat, feed myself, so what am I going to do? I'm either going to go to where I get the food, or I'm going to pay somebody that has gone there for me. And we have completely forgotten those things, and it's very sad. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Confusing these lines actually moves us away from what God ordains. Remember, when Israel was established, it was not a society based on um, uh, supply and demand. I, I'm sorry, not what am I thinking of? Um, uh, services, like we have today. We've got Walmart, and we've got Publix, and we've got 7-Eleven, and we've got, you know, we want to go out to the Thai restaurant. We've got all those things. That was not the way it was set up. It was set up as an ag agricultural society. Everything they gave to the Lord was based on how much their work of their hands had been productive. And if they weren't productive, you know, you go into the Proverbs and it says that when uh, a person doesn't take care of the house, the roof will sag, right? It wasn't productive. Roof caves in, there's weeds in the, the field, that's his fault. And the Lord tells him that in advance. This is your fault. You were not industrious with your time, okay? Ruth, she had nothing. But she knew that the law allowed her to go and to glean behind the people that were working. And she did, right? She was willing to get up and work. But we have lost that completely in this world. We think that it's my right to sit in a house, have the government send me money, and then somebody will bring me food and put it on my doorstep, which we should, every Saturday we see it. Was it Meals on Wheels? Mm. This is what they expect. It, I, I just don't understand how we can get people into that mentality and them to think that this is okay. Now, this is what we try to get them out of. We try to get them to understand that Christ, we've got one girl that's waiting to work. I'm telling you what, she's not worked one day in her life, and she's 37 years old now. But she's been, uh, she applied for a job. They've granted it to her. She's been waiting patiently. She's almost anxious every time we see her. Well, this has come up, and this has come up, and they're, they're doing this research. And, you know, it's not her fault. It's just that she's in this box, and the government doesn't want her out of this box. And so she's waiting to start a job that she has never worked a day in her life. And what, six years ago, five years ago, she was on crack. She was smoking pot every single day. And now she has turned her life around. She's got her children back. And that's what we're trying to do for these people down there. But people don't understand. Couldn't she take a temporary job in the meantime? No, this, this, this is a temporary job. This is her first job ever. So this is, it, it's a big step. But every single thing that, that we should be doing is getting people to think right about that because as I just read it, confusing these lines of what you are due from God and what you think you are due from man, when you confuse those, it actually moves you away from what God ordains. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be careful that when we tell people about the Lord and what he expects, that's why I say, I've said probably 10 times a year on Sunday is, um, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what God expects. You work, you eat. If you don't work, you shouldn't blame somebody else for you not eating, okay? Unless you're incapable of it, and the Lord provided for them in the Old Testament, and he certainly provides for it in the Christian economy. We are to have compassion on people that can't take care of themselves. And above all, a person that can't take care of themselves is to be taken care of by the 
By the family. The family first. That's right. And only after that the church is to step in. The family is to take. If you don't take your, uh, care, take care of your family, you are worse than a infidel or a pagan. That's right. Thank you. you. Your responsibility is to take care of the people that are in your family that can no longer take care of themselves. That's not the government's responsibility. That is your responsibility. Okay. Um, so uh, life application on this first. And we've got 15 minutes. So we're going to close early because uh, there's no point in getting into another one. We'll go through something else for a couple minutes. Um, life application. God does not show favoritism in his judgments. And he acts, asks us to act likewise. However, God places us according to his wisdom and expects us to live within that placement or pick up and move to action based on the abilities that he has made us with. Take time today to think clearly on moral and social responsibilities and don't let the lines of your thinking become confused, lest it lead you to find fault in God where no fault exists. I'll give you another example. I won't give his name, but he's a boy that we've seen grow from about this big after eight or nine years, and now he's way taller than me. Okay, and he got his first job just recently as well. But he's gone through that age, you know, between 15 and 18, they go through that age, and and they start doing things they shouldn't, which I never did, by the way. But um, they, they, they go through these things. And one day I sat down with him because he was having some troubles. And uh, I, I always do this separate from other people. And I said, listen, do you want to be sitting here when you're 55 or 60 years old in this chair in the projects? Is that what you want? I don't want to be here. Nobody would want to be here. At your age, you want to get out and you want to do it all you see on TV and you want... It will never happen unless you get up and do something. Because if you don't, you're going to be sitting here in 55 years getting the same money that your mother and your grandmother and your great-grandmother have been getting. You will never leave here unless you act. And I think it may have touched a, a note with him. And, I, you know, we, we've been with him now, like I say, for eight or nine years. Each one of us has talked to him individually, I'm sure. But he's out working now. He's got a bike and he rides to work. But only time will tell. Only time will tell what's going to happen with them. All we can do is lead them to the water, but we can't right. force them to drink it. And, you know, it, 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 it's sad because how many people in Sarasota, Tom? We used to have 11 teams. Is that what you said? Yeah. 11 yeah. teams. There's one team for all of, all of the projects. There's one team out there now, which is, goes between two and five people at any given time. And that is it. Used to be 11 teams from churches all over, and everybody just quit doing it. Wow. And those people, they need somebody to lead them out of the mess they're in. Right. You know? That's the problem. It's like, you know, it's like, it's, you can't, it's not drive by evangelism. No, it's you not. You cannot save somebody in five minutes or less. No. It Especially not there because they don't trust you to start with. Yeah. They have, there is no trust with people like that at all. They have been neglected, they have been marginalized, and they have been completely ignored their entire life. They go to school and they sit in the corner and they see all the kids with a lot of expensive things and they don't have it and they go right back down there and they think, well, why don't I have that? And they, nobody's ever taught them that you actually have to get up and work. You have to start saving. And I know people that are in the projects that have the exact same job that people out of the projects have. Garbage men, postmen, they have the same job and yet they're in the projects because they've never been told how to save money. They've never been told that you need to Think ahead. You need to manage. You need to plan. And then there are those people that move into the projects because they just came from overseas. They don't speak one word of English. They're there for 
a year and they're out, they have a car, they have a business, and they're starting a life in America somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But there are people that are in there that have been there for three and four and five generations and they haven't left a block from where they were because nobody's told them how to get out of it and the government isn't gonna tell them. The government wants them there because they've got them in bondage and they know that they're gonna get their vote next election day. Very, very sad. But this is how we, you know, all of these things are tied up in the Bible. Every single thing that we've talked about here is tied up in scripture because God has given us rules to live by and we need to live by those rules. We need to apply them to our lives and we need to make sure that we tell others about that. And we need to do it without confusion. And how do we do that? By learning the Word of God. Hard work. Uh, you mentioned about families taking care of the widow. Yes. First. I don't remember what book. It's New Testament. I remember that. And it's not even Jesus even talking about it where somebody claimed something so they didn't have to hand over. Oh, Corban. Yeah. That's, that's speaking to Jesus. And what they would do is that if you devoted something to God then it couldn't be used for any other purposes. And that doesn't mean that you couldn't get it back. They could get their korban back and they could uh, use it for their own life. But if they said, I've devoted this to God, then it can't be used to take care of the parents. But the law said that you're to take care of your parents. And so they have nullified the law by the man-made traditions. It's a way of getting around the law. And that's what Jesus was speaking about. It's the, the practice of korban. And so that is what Jesus condemned them for. They're using the law against the purposes that God intended. The purpose was to take care of the widow and the orphan and the parents and all of these other things. Right. And people found ways around that. Following the rules but not the principles. That's that's right. And so it, 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 that is what leads to real heartache in this world mm -hmm. is because people are willing to put this life ahead of God. And we can't do that. So that's... Loopholes. Yeah, exactly. Loopholes. All right, next week we're going to be in 2.12. And... Um, Let's see here. Gurudat, would you close this in prayer, sir? Wait, we're not going to Oh, wait. What? Oh, yeah, oh, thank you. I, you know, I meant to announce that at the beginning of this class. Before we pray, I am not going to be here next Thursday. We are going to have a class, and I'm so glad you're reminding me of that, because um, uh, Burke is going to be teaching the class, and for the people that are online, he's got a, uh, uh, what he's going to do is he's going to go through all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus. Is that right? And so, what he has done, and you need to download this app. There's an app, it's called the Shakmi. And he is going to go through, and he's going to ask people every single, wait, wait, wait. He, he's going to go through every single pro, um, prophecy that points to Jesus, and you have to know that prophecy. And if you don't know the prophecy, you've downloaded the Shakmi app to your uh, iPhone, he's going to push a button, and it's going to shock you. And so, this is everybody, not really. But, but anyway, uh, he's going to do. It's going to be a very interesting class. So be here next Thursday, even if I'm not here online. And uh, uh, Burke will give you a good class. I know you'll have fun with it. So when you get the vacation, or you? No, no, no. I've got to go do something for Vic Rowey. Okay. And he asked me. He said it's only a one-time thing, but it's okay. something I have to do. I committed okay. to it. And so um, yes. Okay. The prophecies are listed for the Old Testament. Okay. The people's duty is. And the fulfillment in the New Testament. Find the fulfillment and, and in the we'll, New Testament. And we'll discuss those. Okay. Next but week. the people that are online didn't exactly. get your syllabus. No, and so those are the people exactly. that, that, what exactly. they are going to need to do is they're going to have to just read the entire Old and New Testament by oh next Thursday <laughs> and remember <laughs> where the Old is coming. fulfilled in the New, right? If they, if they, if they want to have it. No, there's no way we could do that where they could do that in the next, I don't think so. If you want to send it to me, I wouldn't know where to post it, so they're not going to know. 
You see what I'm saying? If I had known in advance, I could have said this is going to be posted. Okay, we'll go ahead and pray out of here. Gurdat. Father, we thank you for this time together to study your word. And we're so grateful to be recipients of your word, mm -hmm. which is authoritative, inspired, and it is the truth. Mm -hmm. And we're so grateful and, and thankful that mm -hmm. we have your word. And so many translations. Mm -hmm. And I pray, Father, that we will continue to be students of your word, approved workers who are not ashamed mm -hmm. to dissect your word, and also to dig into it and to discover all the wonderful truth you have for us. Mm -hmm. And not only to know it, but to share it and to obey it and to live it. We thank you, Lord, for Charlie and his ministry. We pray that you will continue to give him wisdom to understand and to interpret and to apply and to teach your word. We thank you for everyone who has come out. We ask you, Father, to increase their knowledge and their understanding of your word. And I pray, Father, that we will truly do as James has exhorted us to do, to be doers of the word. Bless us and that's the rest of our time for this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. I don't know where the uh, camera is with Sergio, but just turn around and wave anyway to the camera. And if there's somebody out there, we love you very much. We hope you have a great evening, okay? All right. Um, wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Paul, am I coming out tomorrow? Are we going to do that? So you got it? Oh, it, it, it's done? Yeah. Did you do it yourself? <laughs>